Our guest today is a legend of the sport and only one of two riders ever to win the coveted Triple Crown by winning the Giro, the Tour de France, and the World Championships in 1987. I have to say, this was a long podcast. Um, talking to a legend like this, we just had to let it go. I have to say that I got into cycling serious about cycling in 1987. So let's just say that Stephen Roach was one of my heroes. So here he is, the man, the myth, the legend. Okay. Welcome Stephen Roach to Bobby and Jens. Hi guys. Great to see you guys. Huh? Man, I, I'm, I'm going to be first to admit it. Uh, I got into cycling around 1984 um, started in 1985 racing a little bit. I was probably 13 at that time. But when I really got serious about cycling, it was, I think I was 15, it was 1987, which just happened to be like one of the most amazing years for, for any cyclist. Um, so I'm going to try to keep this childhood fanboy stuff to a minimum, but I'm really looking forward to, uh, to talking with you today. It's going to be a, a great time. Thank you. Um, you know, Jens and I are the same age. We're probably about 12, 13 years um, younger than you. But um, we had a hard time getting started in cycling, especially over in Europe. But, like, what was it like for you being Irish, getting started in what that was the late 70s, early 80s, um, even just making that trip across the water there? It, it had to have been a challenge because – Back then, not many people were making money at cycling. You guys all had to have other jobs or other professions, right? Yeah, exactly. Like it wasn't about the money because um, there was no money in cycling back in the seventies and eighties. So it was basically the, the passion. You know, I was um, I played football with my my local community, and I thought it was good, but I found myself on the bench every Sunday. <laughs> so I trained with my mates all week. And yet on the Sunday, I found myself being a spectator. So, um, but it didn't bother me because I, I really enjoyed it. And then um, uh, one day, this, um, this lady who um, lived in our kind of a housing estate, who knows everybody's business, <laughs> you know, and uh, always looking out a window, watching what's going on. And her husband uh, rode for a, a local cycling club. And she was crossing by the, the pitch. And she said, Stephen, you like riding a bike, don't you? I said, yeah, I like going out, you know, a small paper round. I delivered papers with my, my bike, and I liked it. Well, she said, there's a cycling club starting up next Wednesday at the local supermarket. Why not go along and, and join them? So um, I went along to this uh, the shopping center, and at that time, the Irish Cycling Federation were starting to kind of regenerate the cycling because um, cycling had gone down in numbers, and they wanted to do a big drive to get kids into cycling. So they got all the clubs around the, the country to, to, to host every Wednesday night a, um, a bike ride. So I turned up to the bike ride, my local bike ride, and I joined it. And there's about 15, 20 younger other guys, same as myself, 13 years of age. We rode a you know, small little, little bike ride. And after about, about a month or so, there was a small race um, around the city center on the outskirts of Dublin. And um, we rode it, and I had no bike, so my uh, really, really, really heavy bike. So my my coach gave a better guy than me his bike, 
and I rode my his my my friend's bike, which is a better bike than mine, but it wasn't a actual racing bike. And I put my trousers up and uh, took my jumper off, and I I participated in the race. And uh, I stopped about halfway, and the coach came running over to me, Stephen, 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 what what's wrong? What's, nothing. But why 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 did you stop? Well, I, I was tired. So um, he said, oh, okay, okay. So, but for me, it was important because I was training with my friends all the week. I was, I was out on a Tuesday night or a Wednesday night with my friends. But every Sunday, whether I completed the race or not, I had a race. That was, for me, that was a, kind of the big attraction in the cycling. And that got me hooked. And I, you know, I, um, I rode kind of races, school bus races that year. And, um, and uh, basically let, let, let my football career <laughs> In the in the balance to take on a not not so much a cycling career but um like I, it was enjoyment like I got so much enjoyment um at the time there were some older guys there uh, looking after us bringing us out on Saturday like hostling trips like hostlings we used to go to the youth hostels which they haven't got them anymore they're trying to three star hotels now but they were kind of old uh, old shacks where there's are uh, rooms with bunk beds and no heating. Uh, one cooker for everybody, one fridge where everybody shared all the food. And, but um, they're in the in the center of Ireland and in, in the in the in the mountains normally, very remote. But fantastic ride getting there, fantastic time down there with my your, your friends, like in your own cooking, cooking your own sausages and your rashers and your your fried eggs. And um, you know you often get a, some of the people there could be walking tourists, maybe playing a guitar, maybe singing Irish music. Like absolutely amazing times, and that's what got me kind of hooked on bike on cycling. I remember back back in my days when when I started cycling meant freedom to me and being yeah. independent. Uh, I could go and see my friends on my bike. I haven't wouldn't have to ask my parents for a ride, and I could explore my own country. Right, every weekend you would have a race in a different place, so I would see more places of my home country. Then was out cycling. Was that part of the motivation for you as well? The adventure, the exploring the world a little bit? It was, yes. And I must say it kind of um it was a gentle introduction to um in being independent. Because um like I was sixteen, I was thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, like they were my younger age, but we used to go away hostling and um we were independent. We had our made our own beds sometimes. Um but while just put in a ball and put in a corner, uh, made our own food. A lot of the time overcooked, but nevertheless, we made our own food. We, we learned from it. And um, like you say, we saw some amazing trails, amazing roads, amazing scenery, um, and met some amazing people. And, you know, to this day, to this day, like, you know, many, many, many years on, we are, we are still friends and, um, and meet up now and again. So um, it was an incredible journey at the beginning where sometimes today, I think the kids don't have this enjoyment. They they ride bikes, they enjoy riding bikes, but the real enjoyment is not like, you know, about doing the um, the, um, the online games and everything else and virtual cycling and everything else. The real the real thing in cycling is just going out and riding a bike and not thinking about the climbs or the gearing or the weather or, or whatever. Just getting out and going a bike and you know enjoying it. Like for example. When I finished my career, I um, everybody was saying to me, Stephen, you know, you must be tired of cycling. You know, so many thousand miles a year and so many years cycling depression. You must be, you know, t- 
tired of cycling. So I kind of agreed with them, but for the sense of agreeing, agreeing with them, I started running, did a bit of swimming, tried other sports, but I was doing it basically to fill a gap. And one day I said, like, Stephen, are you really enjoying this? You know, you don't get the same kicks out of the, you know, riding the bike. So I pulled an old bike out of the attic and I pumped the tires up. I had no cycling clothing, so I had a pair of football shorts, a pair of trainers, went down the road to a friend of mine and um, pumped my, got a pump, pumped the tires up, went off in a 30k, came back and there's a big climb up to my house, but I couldn't climb it. I was dead. <laughs> so I stopped at the bottom of the shop, had a bottle of lemonade, two Mars bars. That's, that's what I've been missing. The kind of the, the feeling of freedom, the feeling of like, you know, getting somewhere, um, hurting, the, the pain, the feeling of kind of, you know, using energy. And I said, this is what I've been missing. I've been trying to do other sports because I've been told, yes, you're saturated from cycling. But the same time, I wasn't really because when you think about it, when I was 13, 14 years of age, I wasn't dreaming about becoming a pro. Because back in those days in Ireland, there was no pros. We didn't know anything about international cycling. So it was about enjoying enjoyment, having fun and, um, you know, going out for, for enjoyment. So the kind of wheel had gone full circle. I started off being like enjoying my cycling and having fun, had my career. And it's kind of come back to the start again, whereas here I am again, you know, just putting on a shirt, shorts, shoes and going out and riding the bike. And not at all, not even once looking in the mirror and say, oh, last last year or three years ago, I rode this in the big year or the... Or I wrote this, you know, we didn't talk on watts because we didn't know what it was about. We thought watts was for the, the lights and the and the heaters didn't think that watts were for and it could be translated into a power on the bike, you know. So um we were um it was basically about uh just having fun. So um you know, things changed, but at the same time the fact that we enjoyed it when we were kids, it the enjoyment had come back again. It didn't matter about the performance, it was more about just getting out in the fresh air and going and seeing new destinations and meeting new people and sharing, you know, my passion with other people and not kind of relating to yesterday. Well, let's go back a little bit to having fun with your friends. You rode for the famous iconic ACBB cycling team prior to the 1980 Olympics. Um, this team is very deep in history with developing riders who were some of your teammates uh, back then on, on ACBB? Um, I had a kind of, there was one or two guys kind of, um, uh, Pascal Poisson, the French pro, went pro with uh, Gitaine, Renaud Gitaine later on, very good rider. Um, Robert Miller had just left ACBB. There's a guy called John Parker, Mark Bell. They were very good riders, but didn't make it into the pro scene. Um, Sean Yates just came in after me, but um, like Paul Sherwin had been there, Graham Jones had been there, Phil Anderson was there just, just before me as well. So um, you know a lot of uh, good names came to the club, but it was a it was a club kind of that was kind of a very kind of um, let's say upfront club in that it was like an amateur team, but they had very strict regulations preparing you for what was coming later. Like, for example, one day they give you a blue T-shirt and an orange T-shirt. And we're told we're having dinner, have your orange T-shirt. So after a few days, my orange T-shirt was starting to smell. So I washed it and it wasn't dry for before coming down for dinner. So I came down in my blue T-shirt. My boss said, Mr. Roach, 
your t-shirt is not orange. I think it's blue, unless I'm colorblind. But yes, but I'm sorry I had to wash it. Doesn't matter. Organize yourself so that you have an orange jumper for the dinner at night time. It's a bit harsh, but at the same time, looking back on it, you know, when you're a professional, when you're, you're professional, you're, you're representing a brand, representing a mar- kind of a mark, you're selling shirts, your shirt has to be clean and, 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 uh, and well ironed. Otherwise, you're not representing properly your, mar- your brand. So it was a very good school, even for teamwork. You know, I remember one day I was racing with a friend of mine, um, Serge Boucherie, who became a, a pro French nas- national champion, and he was director sportif of diff- uh, the GAN, the, the um, uh, Credit Ecole uh, pro team. And um, Serge was, of course, you know, a little bit older than me and a little bit more mature, <laughs> a little more, you know, <laughs> very, very French, you know. Um, and um, he, was, uh, he was up on the road on a break, and uh, I thought, okay, well, I'll try and get across to the break. So I'm on my way across to the break on my own, and the car came up and said, Mr. Rouge, uh, what are you doing? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going after the break. Yes, but we have uh, one man on the break already. Well, well, there's nobody with me. I can get across to it. Mr. Roach, back to the peloton. So I was a bit upset, but then that night, I would explain that, Mr. Roach, the problem is you have one man in the front. You don't risk bringing the peloton across to the other guys in front. You wait your turn. You don't chase after your teammates in the front, you know? You know, Vicentini doesn't believe I learned a lesson that day, later on in my career. But <laughs> but um, I, that day I was told, you know, kind of, you have to give your teammates a chance. And um, and I was told why you do it. Like, Serge Boucher was a good guy. If Serge Boucher wins the race, they get front page on Lee Kip. If Stephen Roach wins the race, they say Stephen who? At the time, you know. So it was more commercial than, than sportive. So when you when you um, actually moved over to France to to race for that uh, club, were you excited or nervous because you had to leave home? I mean, yeah. back then there's no internet. Telephone is like whatever ten Irish pounds a minute. You yeah. know, there's no fax machines, so you would have to write a letter to your parents or to your exactly. loved ones behind. H- how was that for you? Did you suffer from being homesick the first months or? How was that transition into a complete foreign culture, foreign language? It was actually, you know, um, crazy in a way. There, there was no, like I said, internet, no Facebook, no Instagram, um, no TikTok or anything else, you know. And it didn't bother us. But like you said, a phone call was very expensive. So we wrote letters. And amazingly today, I've met people, uh, friends of mine that say, oh, you know, you wrote a letter to me back in 1980 when you were, on your in the on your own in your apartment in the Boulogne Biancourt, I still have the letter. Whereas you know you forget about these things because of internet and the modern technology and modern communications. But um, nevertheless, we did write a lot of letter, a lot of letters. Yes, but when I was coming away, my my parents were very worried that I would give up my schooling to go after you know cycling where there's no money. And in Ireland, we had in the 80s, we had of course Sean Kelly who went professional in in uh, 76 was doing quite well but then Sean Kelly was from the countryside I mean Stephen was from Dublin the city boy so a city boy can't mix with a country boy country boys have nails for breakfast you know they have they get they have they're really steel strong men whereas city boys are too soft so you know how who was I to even dream of becoming a professional cyclist it'd be hard for this you know so my parents are were worried that I would um give up my studies, which I was preparing to be a, 
a um I won't say an engineer, but I've got like a maintenance mechanic working in a factory on machinery. And um they were afraid I would give up my my studies to for the bike. So my parents said, listen, get your studies done and you can do whatever you want. So I qualified for my 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 degree in 79. And um, Lucien Bailly, who was a, at the time a French national um, coach, he was um, a very good friend of a, an Irish guy called Peter Crinion. And Peter was one of the Irish kind of kind of um, pioneers of cycling back in the 50s and 60s with the late Shea Elliott, who was one of the very biggest kind of Irish stars before the, the 80s. He was like second or third in the world championships. I think he was yellow jersey in the world, the Tour de France back in the 50s. Um, a very, very good rider. But um, Peter was like my coach and my mentor. So he brought in this guy, Lucien Bailly, and we were um, on a training ride. And I was riding normal shoes and uh, leggings because it was, uh, it was freezing cold and rain in Ireland, winter. And I was still keeping up with all the, the seniors. And this was like 79, like pre-Olympics, pre-Olympic year. So um, he said to me, Stephen, you know, you're, you're, you're actually doing very good here, but you, you're wasting your time um, riding here um, hoping to do well in the Olympics because in Dublin I was working nine to five, a day job. And then I was working overtime Tuesday and Thursday until nine o'clock. So I couldn't train except go in the morning at 6 a.m. before going to work at eight. So at six to eight, I was going training, going to work. And then Monday, Wednesday and Friday after work, I was doing a, another uh, technology um, studies in a, in a, a um, high-end college in Dublin. So I couldn't train Wednesday nights either, Monday, Wednesday, Friday nights. And then on the weekends, I would sometimes finish work on the Friday, get on the, the 9 p.m. boat in Dublin, go across to the UK, arrive in the UK at 6 a.m., come off the boat, drive somewhere, have a bed and breakfast, and then race on the Sunday, finish the race Sunday night, back to the, the boat, across on the ferry, arrive in Dublin at 6 a.m., on the Monday morning into work at 8 a.m. So Lucia says, Stephen, this kind of routine, you can't get great results. You're getting good results, but this kind of routine, you can't uh, get results. So I suggest you go to France and you do the six months prior Olympics in France and you um, race with the guys that are competitive. I said, okay, well, find me a, find me a club. And Lucia found me uh, the ACBB. So um, they, they said, okay, come along for the, for the year and uh, see how he got on. So at this time, I had no real, I won't say I had ambition, of course, but I had no real kind of set in my mind. I want to be a pro, I want to be a pro, I want to be a pro. My aim was to do the best I can in the Olympics. And at that time, in a particular time, I was going to ride in a French club, a very good French club, but I wasn't even, I'd say I had a dream in the back of my mind of becoming a pro, but it wasn't going to be, I got to be a pro, I got to be a pro, you know? So, um, which is something which helped me a lot along the way because I had in my back pocket, I had my, my job. So I knew that if it didn't work out, I had my, my, uh, my, my career in, uh, in maintenance. Well, <clears throat> let's just say it worked out. Um, maybe the Olympics wasn't, wasn't super. Um, no. I think you were hampered by some sort of uh, knee injury or something like that. But then when you got back to Europe, you went on an absolute tear you know, winning races and then getting um, signed by the iconic, probably one of the most iconic, if not, not the most iconic team of all time, Peugeot. And then, so you spoke French already. You 
obviously had the work ethic, um, but then you turn pro for Peugeot and you go and you win Perry Nice as a Neo pro. Um, that, how did you make such a smooth transition from working overtime, going to the Olympics, finding, you know, maybe falling a little bit short, but then just crushing the last half of the season and then starting the 1981 season by winning Perry Nice as a Neo pro. Well, first of all, when I was going away to the, to the, um, to the, to the ACBB, my parents had um, a tea from me at home. And um, some of my, my, my team, my club coach was there and some friends. And Peter Crinian, the guy that was uh, my mentor and ex kind of independent cyclist back in the 60s, was there. He said, Stephen, just do me one favor. When things get tough, just keep going. Because there are many people here who think that the only tour Stephen Roche will ever do is a tour of the Eiffel Tower and becoming home. So many, time, many times during 1980, that was in my mind when times are difficult. You know, I was saying, Stephen, you can't go home. You can't go home. I'm staying here till October. You know, doesn't matter what happens. I'm doing a full season. And about in May of 1980, my the team coach at the ACBB uh, was I was driving back from the the Route de France, the two days before Paris Roubaix amateur, and my 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 job had given me six months leave of that absence, but I had to tell them if I was coming back after the Olympics or not. So it was getting to the time where I got to give my answer. So I thought, okay, well, I'll ask the boss. So I asked the boss what my chances were of becoming a pro. He says, ah, Mr. Roach, second in Paris, third in Paris, trois. It's not with a, a list of second and third places you become a pro. You got to win something. So the next day I won Paris-Roubaix. But, <laughs> and then I went on, then I won, you know, I won a few more Paris-Rams or big classics. Went to the Olympics hoping to, you know, do a good ride. Didn't do a good ride. So because I didn't do a good ride, I had no contract. Because of before going to the Olympics, I told my job, I won Paris Bay. Hey, hey, I'm not coming back. So I had no job, no contract. I had nothing. So the big decision to make whether I go back to France and have another go or whether I go home to Ireland and pick up my, my tools and start working again. So I thought, okay, well, let's go back to France. So I went back to France and then I won... 16, and 17 other race then for the end of the year. Got my pro contact with Peugeot. Trained, trained uh, very hard during the winter time. And then uh, when I came to France then in February 1980, we, uh, I was with Robert, Robert Miller, went on a training camp. We arrived at the, the team headquarters and Mr. Maurice Dumer, who was a big, you know, at the time, a big um, iconic uh, uh, team director, he was playing cards in the foyer of, in the lobby of the hotel and um, Miller was talking in French to, to Maurice and after a few minutes Maurice says to uh, Robert is your driver eating with us or is he got leaving so Miller says uh, 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 my, my, my driver he says yeah you guy this is, this is, uh, this is Roach this is Roach the cyclist and he keeps playing cards he says maybe in the amateurs he won races but that kind of weight, he won't win here in the pro. He kept continuing playing cards. So my morale went boom, <laughs> straight down. <laughs> so uh, anyway, we um, we uh, I had a kind of an easier ride then because when we started racing, then I was getting results, even though I was maybe a little overweight. I was still getting results, and uh, I went to the Tour of Corsica, and um, the 
a guy called Jacques Boissis, which is a very good French writer, but a top uh, Peugeot writer. He was away in a break on his own, and Hino was playing kind of with, with him behind, letting Jack ride in the front on his own, letting him kind of die. So I jumped out of the, the peloton, got across to him. We rode like a tandem together to the finish. And coming to the finish line, Jack let me win. Uh, because the poor kid has done all the work, let poor kid win the win the stage. And the next day there was a time trial, which he was hoping to win, to win the overall. But in fact, the next day there was a time trial. I won the time trial. He didn't win the time trial. I was second, but I beat everybody else on time, and I won the tour of course again. Then I went to Paris Nice, and then of course I won Paris Nice. So um, it was an incredible start to the season. Like I'm only twenty one. And uh, winning those two big races um, early on was great, but at the same time, it put a lot of pressure on me from the media. And, you know, I wasn't ready for it, to be honest with you, I wasn't ready for it. And um, because I was getting results, um, pushed, you know, in, in front at the time was, there was no reference to your, 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 your watts or your fatigue or whatever. It was all about, you ride well, you race. There's no question about, oh, he's only 21. You know, race, race, race. So um, I was pushed into a lot of races. So um, when you won uh, these races so early, how how did you win? Was it your time trialing? Was it cleverness? Was it your willingness to, to, to suffer, to go out in a break, daring tactics, where you got climber? How did you manage to, to win your early races? I think my, my most important asset was my recovery. Like I am... I, um, in the stage races, I was always, you know, after day three, I was always getting better and better. And then I wasn't going down as fast as the other guys. I was a very good ascender, um, very good time trialist, um, very good at reading the race, very good tactically. And um, time trialing, like I was able to go out, analyze the circuit, uh, choose my, my, not so relevant today because you have a time trial bike and you ride it, whereas we had only got like, you know, 12 speed, 12 gears, where you have got to make use of every gear you have on the bike. So it's very important when you have a big big ring, small ring, your your, your ratio, your sprockets in the back were very important to have them the proper ratio to get the good to get the, the good rhythm. But um, probably my, my, my best thing was my my um, my recovery rate. I was very good at recovery and also the reading a race. And I I was very good at um, gambling. You know, I was uh, when I was team leader. I was always able to, um, you know, I wasn't the first one to put my team to ride on the front. I always wait a little bit, who's going to ride first, and uh, only rode when I had to ride. And in that way, when I called my teammates to ride, uh, they gave it 110% because they knew if Steven says ride, it's because it's urgent. That's right. So nobody made any kind of questions about do we, don't we, or why they, they rode. But um, my most important asset, I think, was my um, my ability to uh, to recover. But... You know, reading the race, you know, reading the race. And I was also, you know, one to kind of say, well, like, if I'm hurting, the others are hurting even more, even more so, which sounds a bit kind of rocky, kind of, you know, Stallone kind of thing. But that's the way it was. It was kind of you were, we hadn't got the, the, the watts or the parameter or the or the dashboard to tell you where you were, which are which are watts and everything else. It was it was basically you're, you got to play a lot on feeling. So, um you know, it was, I basically went a lot on, on feeling. And um, one thing which was good for me was that nobody saw when I was suffering because I was very smooth on the bike. So initially people were saying, oh, Roach can't suffer because 
when the going gets tough, Roach gets dropped. But it was only because I'm suffering a lot, it doesn't show, then I'm hanging, 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 gone. Whereas people thought, well, Stephen doesn't have to suffer, so when it gets rough, he gets dropped. Where in fact, I'm suffering inside, but people don't see it. And this is why in 87, the tour, I bluffed a lot with Delgado because he was a good climber and I wasn't, I was a good climber, but he was a real climber. And on one or two stages at the bluff, I was riding on the bottom bracket, <laughs> but if he only could, if he only kind of could read what was kind of coming up here, you know, in my brain, I was burning, you know, but um, because I wasn't throwing shapes and, you know, all over the place, didn't see, didn't kind of see or detect that I was suffering. And that was one of my biggest assets also, because um, I was um, quite kind of quite smooth on the bike. So nobody really noticed when I was getting it rough. You kind of mentioned it, and I'm curious because, you know, nowadays you look at riders in July or December, and they probably oscillated one to two kilos. But is it true, the rumors that I heard back in the day when riders of your generation would show up to either the first training camp or the first race with like hairy legs, quite a few extra kilos and just use the racing to kind of get them into shape and not really even train over the winter? Um, I used to, um, most of my generation would have been kind of, you ride the last race in October, say, I used to ride at one or two, six days just to kind of prolong my season, but I'd be finishing the end of October. And I wouldn't touch the bike then because I always felt that um, I was better. There's no, no prizes for, no medals for, for training. So I always felt that no point in going out and training for the sake of training. You better have going training when you've got a motive and you have, a, you have something to go for. So also, I also felt that mentally, if you aren't physically fit, if you're mentally fit, it's almost the same. If you're physically fit and mentally tired, you're never going to be 100%. So I used to kind of say, well, from February to October, I can compete and compete to win. And mentally, I'll be able to sustain the, the 10 months on top mentally. Doesn't matter what hits me, I can, I can deal with it. But then when I come to the end of the last race, don't talk to me about racing. I hang the bike up, just going to wind down. And I wait until I kind of feel, yeah, now it's time. And then I start back kind of what ride here, ride there and whatever. And my routine would be like Christmas Day, I go ride a bike. From Christmas Day to New Year's Day, I would start getting into a routine. You know, no um, back off from the, from the cakes, the sugars and the sweets and everything else. Back into a routine, bed at 10 o'clock, up at 7 o'clock and everything else, you know. Get into a routine. And, uh, and then on the... On the January the 1st, doesn't matter what we did the night before, I get up and go, sorry, one second. One second, sorry, 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 guys. <laughs> you want to go out or in? <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking we just kind of roll with this, and if it's longer, it's longer. Sorry, guys. All good. <clears throat> The dog needs to do what a dog needs to do. Exactly. Yeah. And you yeah, don't want to clean light. it later on from the carpet, right? <laughs> I know. We have two dogs as well. It's it's my job as well. So, yes, let them out. Yeah, yeah. Hey, yeah. Um, so, um, um, Steve, um, um, when you told us you start a more serious uh, beginning of January, can you give us a number? How many miles or kilometers you had at the start of Perry Nice, beginning of March, so January, February, two months. 
uh, was how much preparation you would go into Perinis? Well, me, it was like, I probably do, up to the first race, I do 5,000 kilometers. Up to the first race and say that we say tour med or thereabouts in, uh, in February. So, um, but, you know, because I knew that when I got there, I could ride myself in. The first real main race would have been like Paris-Nice, even though we always rode well in the, in the, the Tour de Mediterranean or the Tour de Ovar, the, the, the earlier early season races, but it didn't really matter about the, having the extra weight. And like, I raced like Tour de France at 65 kilos. And the winter in end of November, I could be 74 kilos. And when I start back on January 1st, I'd probably be 72 kilos. And I start racing in February at 69 kilos. And then after that, then it would come down slowly up to the tour. But um, down to 65, 66 kilos for the tour. And then that was it then. But it wasn't, it wouldn't have been dieting or trying to get her off. Because, you know, we were in those days, we weren't kind of so kind of astute as the guys today. It was about, you know, I need the, the extra kind of fat to, to burn in the stage races. Very, 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 we're, we guys... Those guys weren't very complicated. They were kind of a bit, bit kind of like farmers. Kind of kind of just, it makes sense. If you start riding a state race, if you don't going to burn out, you got to have a little bit of extra starting it off. That was our, our attitude. But um, I might have had a little bit too much because looking back at it now, it takes a lot of training, a lot of hard work to get those kilos off you, you know. So, um, but I never dieted to get it off. We're just going to pull back on, on, on everything. And of course, my... I did a lot of training. You know, I would go, myself and Sean Kelly would generally um, go on a training camp from, say, the mid-February. mid-February. And because there are a lot of races on down south of France. So we'd start off, say, riding Tour Mediterranean. After Tour Mediterranean, we go for a week somewhere, like in Nice somewhere, take a soigneur or a mechanic, one or two teammates each. We'd ride a bike every day, have a massage every day. And the following weekend would be like uh, Tour de Odvar or whatever, back to Paris then for Paris-Nice. After Paris-Nice, stay again till Milan-San Remo. After Milan-San Remo, Quartier National. That was kind of one big, kind of two months of a routine where you leave home, say, um, February 1st for your training camp and team presentation, and you come home after Patrick's Day, after Milan-San Remo, which is generally March 15th or 16th. That was the kind of the, the general routine, and for me, that was the foundation for whatever came. And very, very important to get that structured to do miles and miles and miles with in the good condition with a masseur, mechanic, good teammates around you, get the good miles in, in the south of France where it was warm. And then, um, but there was no kind of, you know, individual training or specific training. It was basic miles, 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 miles. Well, I, I've always been curious about this because, you know, you won Paris Nice in 1981. And then Sean Kelly went on to win, what, seven Perry Nieces in a row after that. What was your relationship like with, with Sean? Um, and w- when did you guys meet? And what what was your relationship like? It sounds like you were very close. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we had a, I always kind of um, a great respect for Sean. I still have. I mean, Sean's a super guy, you know, super rider. And if you can't beat them, join them, you know. And, um, but whatever about Sean winning his seven Paris Nieces, I'm the first Irish guy that won Paris Nice. 
so uh, and I showed him the way, you know, <laughs> because uh, you know. I can also say that, uh, you know, by boasting about it, I can say, well, you know, before I went to France, Sean was, you know, he won a few, a couple of stages here and there in different races. And then when I came and showed him that an Irish guy can actually win Paris Nice and a Tour of Corsica and everything else, well, maybe he can do it. So the following year, he kind of duplicated what I did and went on and on and on. And um, in, the, in the Tour of Lombardy, actually, in 1981, Sean was fighting, I think, with somebody for the the prestige Pernod, um uh, title in, in France. And um, I actually helped Sean and rode for Sean um, to to help him um, win the, the, the Lombardy. And he won the prestige Pernod. And the following year then, he won Paris Nice and went on. But um, one year, I was not myself and Sean were fighting for Paris Nice. And Hino was also, you know, fighting. So Sean said to me, uh, I said to Sean rather, Listen, Sean, you know, if we bring Hino to the Caldez, the final stage, if he beats us, you know, it's where both of us are beating. So why not try and if I go, you don't chase. If you go, I don't chase. So we're trying to let Hino do the riding. So all of a sudden then, Sean was gone in a breakaway. <sighs> I've, been, I've been screwed here. He's gone. So then Sean was caught. So that's my, my turn. So I got away in a break. I'm away in a break. See, this is my Paris Nice now is one. Sean isn't going to ride behind. It's great, you know. So then I hear on the motorbike, the race radio, a uh, team of uh, Sean Kelly, um, Skill, Samoir, France, uh, riding on the front. Oh, what's going on here? So anyway, they finally caught me. So um, I said, Sean, Sean, what are, you, uh, what are you doing? The deal was if you're in front, I don't ride. If I'm in front, you don't ride. Yeah, 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 I know what I mean. There was three guys with you. So I don't mind... You know, you winning, but I want to be second. You know, that was Sean. <laughs> he kind of, he wanted, yeah, okay, give you a deal, okay, but, you know, I want to be second, you know. So, um, but he, um, but nevertheless, he was, uh, we always stayed good friends and uh, on and off the bike. And um, Sean is actually, I think, uh, actually uh, Nicholas' uh, godfather, you know, Ooh. and uh, yeah. And, um, you know, we always got on really well, um, strictly because we were, we left the, the office in the office. And outside the office, then it was, you know, normal, normal relationship. And, um, you know, people will often say to me, Stephen, but uh, you actually helped Sean much more than he helped you, you know? I said, yeah, probably because Sean was a sprinter. So I get into a, a stage race. Coming to the finish, Sean's no teammates. I do a bit on the front for him and kind of, you know, pull over and whatever and um, help Sean. Whereas Sean didn't really have an opportunity to, or many opportunities to kind of help me. But one answer I have for people that do think that I give more um, to Sean and Sean actually gave back to me where it was a bit unbalanced relationship. But for me, when you go back to the World Championships in 87, I rolled my eyeballs out that day and for, well, for Sean and for, for the green jersey. And I won the World Championships. And Sean was sprinting in for second place or third place. And he's sprinting, sprinting, sprinting. He crossed the line, throws his hands up. Whereas there was no thought there, should I do it? Are the cameras watching me? You know, what should I do? What, what's good to do? Like Sean, you know, anyone who knows Sean, Sean's not a no cinema, he's straight, you know. So Sean was so happy for me. Like he's sprinting for second place. He sees I win. Wow! Throws his hands up. Spontaneous. So for me, that's what all the words, all the explanations that anybody can give. 
that the guy was genuinely happy for me because we're good friends. So, you know, everything I did for Sean during my career, during our careers, or whatever he did for me or didn't do for me, for me, it's all just all part of the package. We were great friends. We, I think we were, it was incredible for coming from Ireland, having two of us at the same time. A bit unfortunate, really, because rather than the whole thing spanning like, you know, 10 years, it could have gone 20 years, maybe, if we'd come at different, different, different times. But nevertheless, I think it brought a lot of pride to the country. And I suppose we did actually, in a way, help each other. You know, Sean seeing me doing what I did and me seeing Sean what he did. It, um, it did help us, I'm sure, you know, motivate us a little bit, makes an extra maybe. But then we had some incredible times, like these, you know, criteriums we had in Ireland, the Kellogg's series, you know, myself and Sean, uh, Martin Early, Paul Kimmage, uh, racing against the British pros. You know, uh, we had some incredible battles. Like, I mean, amazing battles and amazing stories to tell. We can go on all night about it. But, um, you know, all part of cycling and, you know, all part of the, not pro cycling, but it's about being friends and all about this beautiful sport we all participate in, you know. It's, um, it's, it's an incredible journey. So now that we talked about Sean Kelly, I don't know if it was, we had your son in a podcast as well, right, Nicolas? I don't know if it was Nicolas telling us or somebody else. Is it true that you actually talked to Sean Kelly in French because you both couldn't understand each other's Irish accent? Is, is that the truth or is it just a fake story? We need to go to the bottom of this now. Take four, finished. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, Sean, um, Sean is a, has a very, um, he's from the country, as we all know, from Carrigan Shore. But the accent sometimes is very difficult to understand. So I understood Sean better speaking French and vice versa. I speak a little bit fast, as you may have noticed. But uh, we spoke to each other in French because uh, our English wasn't, uh, wasn't, we couldn't understand, but it was easier for us and less embarrassing to speak, uh, to speak both speak in French. So it's true, yeah. Wow! See that 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 just blows my mind. That is hilarious. But, and but mm-hmm. I'll give you another thing with Sean. You know, when, when Sean went to France first, he was very very quiet. And we all know Sean now is a great guy, commentates really well on Eurosport, and great social guy, great guy to have out, and everything else. You know, you can never imagine Sean in the early days. But you know, we all have this. Well, from our generation anyway, we all remember an interview that Sean did. Back in about 78, 79, uh, a radio reporter said, having an interview with Sean, and um, the guy said to Sean something like, How did it all say, Sean? Okay. Do you think tomorrow you'll you win the stage? Maybe. His questions, <laughs> that's all it was. Or shook his shoulders. Where when you're on television, you can see what's happening. But Sean was so quiet and so um, so shy. He wouldn't. Um, he wasn't express, expressing himself, you know. But then, of course, with the success and everything else, uh, he came out of his shell, and um, you know, he was a great communicator then, you know. But um, but yeah, initially it was myself and Sean. We spoke uh, spoke French so we could uh, understand each other. That's I thought that was a secret, though, you know. <laughs> I thought it was a secret. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I mean, we had Nicholas, your son. We had Dan Martin, your nephew. And we also had Rob Hatch, so I don't know exactly which person we'd have to go through those episodes to say that, but I thought it was BS, but you just confirmed it. But Stephen, listen, the, the reason 
that I'm so excited that you're on the podcast is to talk about your 1987 season. Like I said, that was when I was getting into cycling. I mean, you won the Giro, you won the Tour, you won the World Championships. We all know that. You you became only the second person to win the so-called Triple Crown uh, after Eddie Merckx, and no one has done that since. Um, you had great results before the Giro. Then you win the Giro, you recover from the Giro, you do the Tour, you recover from the Tour, and then you win the Worlds. What did it feel like to be so dominant every race basically that you put your leg over the top tube that year well it was um it wasn't that I felt kind of kind of in a dominant form but i basically rolled up any race and it was um i rolled up to win and whatever came came and um i wasn't like kind of one to kind of say i'm going to prepare for this race or prepare for that race i was preparing for the season and after that then you know take what come you know but um like for example, in in '85, I won. I was third in the tour, and um, I signed my contract with Carrera. And '86, of course, they signed me up, hoping I was going to do better than third place. But I had a bad crash on the indoor track in '85 in Paris, and I did a bit of a damage to my knee. So '86 was wiped that season for me. '86. So of course, um, Carrera had paid me good money to good money in them those days. To um to come be leader and try and do better than third place in the tour, and I hadn't performed, so of course in the winter they called me in and they said, "Mr. Roach, you're a very nice guy. You uh you've been you know been spending a lot of money on you, but um we haven't had a return on investment. Um can you please um tell me what your forecasts are going forward because um we need to make our investment uh worthwhile. So um. I told him, like, okay, I've I found a doctor in Germany, Muller Wolfsfar, who has said he can help my knee. Um, I'm going to start training and, you know, everything should be okay. So they said, okay, great, but, you know, we're paying you a lot of money to, for, to be going in this kind of a tunnel, not knowing where we're going. We can't have a repeat of 86. So I said, well, when you get married, you get, better, get married for better or for worse. Let's just say you've seen the worst. So give me till, till April, till Easter, if by Easter I don't show any signs of, you know, of doing the goods, I will then sit down with you and we will talk contracts. But today it's very unfair to sit down and ask me to reduce my, my contract. So we agreed on it and, you know, got my knee sorted out and had a really good winter. And I came along then and I, um, I, um, I did really well. I won the Tour of Valencia, my first, uh, one of my first... Um, outings in the 87 season I won the Tour of Valencia and then I went on then like and you know Tour of Romandy um, Italy and what have you but I had no plan starting off like yeah I'm going to win all these races I'm going to prepare prepare for the Tour you know it was basically um, um, I had to do the Giro because I'm riding for an Italian uh, team then of course you got to do the Tour because everybody as a bike rider wants to ride the Tour and um, but you know, we had Vicentini on the team, so um, which gave me a bit of a bit of um, you know, a bit of comfort and knowing that they already had a leader. So if I didn't perform, well, um, Vicentini was there. Um, now, when you talked about leading into your great season, you had a little bit of an off season. 
we we found or I found many times that a rider or any athlete is forced to take a longer break is having a really strong comeback because I don't know if it's science or not, but it feels like every cell of the body is recovered. Do you feel it as well that your bad year, your crash, after all the tragic, it turned out to actually help you with this wonderful year 87? Because I have seen it a few times. There must be a connection that riders, they are forced to take it easy, come back stronger, at least for one year after that. Did you felt a little bit like that or not at all? No, you're definitely right. You know, um, I think one thing I learned from having a couple of injuries early on in my career before 87 was that uh, to take your time because when you get injured, you're you're a bike rider, but you can't ride your bike for different reasons. And you kind of say, well, here I am, I'm a bike rider. I can't ride my bike, so um, I'm not working. I, all those races are all going by. I can't ride them. I can't show myself. I'm I'm not going to going to be employed again next year. All these kind of things are coming up. So you want to, you panic and you want to go, okay, I'll just try it and see if I'm okay. Whereas in 87, I kind of learned about myself. And because I had a bad 86, my big thing was, I'm not going to say, okay, my knee is okay now. I'm going to go out and try it. I'm going to follow the doctor's orders and go out and stay under any pain barrier. Because the thing was, once you go out and try it, when you feel the pain is too late, it's a setback. So I think the most important thing is to, to learn to have patience about when you're injured, you're injured. Your body needs to recover. And asking your body body to go out and make efforts, you got to be able to kind of manage those efforts. We haven't got any power meters back then to manage the power either. So basically all, all on, on feeling. But um, I think you're dead right in what you're saying. It's um, you, you, but in doing this, you're regenerating your brain, your motivation, um, as well as physically regenerating yourself as well. So that when it all comes together, all the pieces come together, you're, you're physically okay, your brain is, is good, all of a sudden then it goes. And I, I think that, um, you know, it was, it was an incredible year, but I think that independent of the, the physical side of it, like I had a really good team, I had some really good teammates, I had a lot of luck, you know, we can say what we want, but, you know, without luck, we don't do anything, you know, with, um, you know, as um, like, for example, I, I never really liked uh, the heat. Whereas in the Giro, everybody was saying, well, once we get down the south of Italy, Roche will, will drop off because it's going to be too hot down there. It rained. So, of course, it was good for me. Then in the tour, it wasn't a very hot tour. It was hot, but it wasn't like over hot. So it meant that I was able to kind of get through it. I had a, a technique where I had these kind of small plastic bags with um, a sponge um, dipped in centol, like Cologne. And every now and again, my teammate, Eddie Shippers, would go back to the car, get a pocket, bring it up, I'd put it all over, and uh, away I go. But um, I kind of managed it. But, um, you know, but a tour in 87 was like 26 days old, so very, very long. So what I was saying earlier on about my one of my main assets was my recovery rate, having a 26-day long tour, like a, a 90 or 87-kilometer individual time trial was, you know, very very long so um you know there was a an 87k time trial there was a the, the team time trial there was a prologue there was a another time trial in dijon at the end of 40k so i mean all about recovery you know so um and of course 
you know, you go to the World Championships then at the end of the year and everyone's kind of saying, well, you know, it's a, it's a sprinter circuit. So I wasn't actually in my own mind thinking about winning the tour, the, the World Championships. My idea was, okay, I'll go there, got good form, I'll do my best to help Sean. So um, when we got there, I went around the circuit. I thought, okay, gee, this circuit is a good circuit. Maybe I can win myself here, you know. So, um, but it was like 35 degrees. So I was baking, you know. But then the very next day, it rained. It was 10, 12 degrees, lashing down the rain. So I'm saying, hmm, okay. Even the gods are with me. It's my way, my day, you know. So um, then everything kind of just came together for me. So, you know, the fact that my triple hasn't been repeated since doesn't reflect that the fact that the riders haven't been there, haven't been capable of doing it. They have been riders capable of doing it. Just everything hasn't stacked up. You know, the, the, the condition, the, the weather, the, the, the race conditions, the race route hasn't been, hasn't been there. But nevertheless, I'm really happy to be only a second guy <laughs> to have won the triple, you know. But um, like I say, it's, um, it's a combination of a lot of things. You know the good health, the, the motivation, the the the, um, the 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 itinerary has to be good for you. The race conditions have to be good for you. Good team, and uh, of course the weather has to be on on your side as well. I mean, there there's so many things, so many questions that I have, but I got to go back to '87. Like you said, there was 25 stages over here in the U.S. They did like a weekly one-hour recap, so we didn't really get everything right. I think it was on ABC Wide World of Sports, and it was either Phil Liggett or John Tesh that was commentating. My main memory of that race as a 15-year-old with the aspiration of becoming a professional cyclist was stage 21 on um, La Plana. You were away for, for quite a while. On the final climb, you get dropped by Pedro Delgado. They're writing you off, Right. You're, you're like one and a half minutes down halfway up the climb. And then like all of a sudden coming into the last kilometer because they didn't have the fancy, you know, television uh, viewing options that we have now, all of a sudden you came back into the picture and you only finished four seconds down saving your yellow Jersey. Two things I have to know. Number one, how the hell did you muster the energy after being off the front all day and getting dropped to just, just punch the turbo button and save the tour. And number two, after the race, I remember you getting carted off on a stretcher with an oxygen mask. And <laughs> I mean, was that absolutely necessary? Or is that how we say in French, un peu de cinéma, a little bit of show? No, it was very, very, um, very, very real, you know, but um like I was saying earlier on, my main asset was my, my recovery and my longevity. Like I, I didn't kind of, I didn't get stronger as I went on, but I didn't go down or lose that much um, condition like maybe other, other riders might. But um, that day on the on La Plania, we were actually, I started off we, from Bourdoison over at Galibier Telegraph. And... Um, Going up to Galibier, the, there was like four or 5,000 meters and climbing for the day. So there's no rush for anybody to go from the line, you know. So, But the Colombians started attacking from the line. First up, the Galibier started attacking. So, of course, the French were saying, oh, piano, piano, piano. The, uh, the poor sprinters, of course, were 
having a very hard day. So the French guys were trying to get the Colombians to calm down because otherwise there's going to be guys going home at night time outside the time limit. So when we go over to Galibier, we um we were basically saying to ourselves, gee, you know, these guys are like flies, they're everywhere. So let's give them a hard time. We go down the hill fast. That way they'll ride in the valley to catch us and they might go slower up the Madeleine. So we um we went down the descent really, really fast. Colombians got dropped, which was also good for me because it meant that Delgado's teammates that got dropped were weren't there, so he was a bit isolated. So when we got to the bottom of the after the descent of the telegraph and before the Madeleine, I'm saying here's a good opportunity here. Delgado was isolated, he's on his own. A small group had just gone away. So I thought, well, okay, well, let's be a bit kind of just be a bit kind of courageous here or stupid or whatever. Let's try and do something. So I jumped away, got across into the into the break, but the break went riding really like I, I had imagined they were going to bring me along, you know. But of course, I was the strongest rider on the break, and they had no real kind of interest in bringing me uh, to the finish. So um, I ended up standing on my own, and um, meantime, the Gado's teammates were all coming coming together. And uh, they they catch me about 10k before the foot of uh, La Plana. So of course I'm not about to spending 100k out there on my own. I'm I'm quite shot, and I'm saying that was a bit suicidal because um you know here I am still one 15k climb uh, to go. So um I knew that um first of all Laurent Fignon and somebody else attacked. They were they were down on GC. So it didn't matter. So I knew that the guy was going to attack me. So, because I thought if he lets me recover, he will have difficulty in getting rid of, getting rid of me. And um, But I know if I try going with him, I'm going to blow altogether myself. So my, my game plan was, let him go. Let him think, road just finished, tour is won, and then see what I can do in the end. I had no choice really, because I was in a bad way. So I, the time is going up. 30 seconds, 40 seconds, a minute, minute and 10, a minute and 20. So I said, okay, listen, guys, I got I to gotta pull something out here because the tour is over. So I upped my tempo a bit, and I realized that I was holding at 120. So I thought, okay, well, I've still got a little bit left. So if I, either he's content to have 120 in the bag, plus whatever it was starting the stage, of course, you know, I must also say this time, my mind was always, if I want to win this day, this Tour de France, I identified my main rival was Delgado. And in a 40k time trial, second last day, if I'm in 40 seconds, in one minute, I can still win the Tour. So my whole Tour was based around getting to Dijon within one minute of Delgado. So here I am, 120 down, plus whatever was starting the stage. So um, I'm holding at 120. And I thought, okay, what I'll do is I'll let him think he's winning because, of course, he's ahead of me. There's no kind of time checks like today in the car and satellite and everything else. It's basically, he's up, he's down. There's no no real kind of reliable uh, time checks with the crowds on the side of the road and everything else. So um, my plan then was, okay, well, I'll hold on, hold on, hold on. And when I hit the 5K to go uh, sign, I'll give it everything. And just, you know, whatever comes, just take it. So I got the 5k, it didn't feel like I done still a bit far, maybe I'll hold on a little, not a little bit. So four came to go and I just said, let's go. And I gave it everything. And um, I didn't know where he was. I knew that 
you know, I just had found his energy and I was, you know, riding quite hard. But um, I didn't know how long it was going to last. It was going to blow myself. I didn't know really, you know, what was going to happen. I just knew that this day I got to save my tour. And um, it was really about, um, about I always remember about, about a kilometre away when you came into the stretch where the barriers were. Um, I had um, Denny Roux, who was a, a very good French rider at the time, who later became the coach of um, with, um, with Gan and with Quédé uh, He was on my wheel. And when we came into the, this open street, I pulled the big ring on. And there was such a big difference in the speed from small ring to big ring, my bike nearly stopped. And I remember Dinny going past, like, look, they're looking at me, saying, what are you doing, you know? And I oh, got the gear going. And then I came around the corner and I saw the red car. And it didn't kind of register with me, but I... I knew there was something there a foot in front of me and uh, of course the last four seconds. But the big thing was that the television had no camera on me because I thought, okay, with Roach is blowing his brain, he's not going to get anywhere. And with 5K to go, I'm still 120 down. So they weren't concentrating on me, they were concentrating on Delgado winning the tour. So of course, the journalists were running over to Delgado to ask him, you know, first impressions, now you've won the tour, Roach is gone. And then Phil Liggett then says, that looks like Roach. That's Roach. So got the, ju- the journalist then started running to me. So, of course, they run to me, want to know, what happened? Where'd you come from? But oh, I, couldn't, um, I couldn't answer. I just collapsed. And one frightening uh, part was that I'm lying on the ground and um, the, looking up and the, the, there was no fancy kind of tribune or uh, camera podium or journalist podium or whatever, this, this kind of scaffolding. Journalists were hanging out, were taking photographs. And I'm saying, that thing's going to fall on me. <laughs> and the, the, the journalists are saying, Stephen, the doctor was saying, Stephen, get your legs in. The, the cars are coming close. And that frightened me because I couldn't move my legs. I was frozen. And the, the doctor is saying, Stephen, you can hear me, blink your eyes. That's all I could do. Just blink my eyes for a few minutes. And they put oxygen on me and everything else. And then after a while, then I started coming around and they put me in the back of the ambulance. And uh, before taking me away, a French journalist came over to the car and said, Stephen, please, please, are you okay? Please, can you please reassure your fans that everything's okay? So I said, ça va bien, mais pas de femme tout de suite. I said, yes, everything's okay, but I'm not ready for a woman just yet. <laughs> So my, so my, my, my wife was happy. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, um, I, um, um, they brought me to the hospital, gave me a check out, brought back to my hotel and into bed. And then about 7.30, my masseur came to my room and says, uh, Stefano, um, what do you want for dinner? I'll bring it up to you. I said, no, 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 I'm going down for dinner. He said, no, don't be stupid. You've got to recover. I said, no, if I don't go down, Delgado would think he's won. Uh, at this time, there were many hotels were using the same like, big hotels and kind of, everyone was eating the same room, you know? So um, rather than taking the lift, I walked down the stairs and got to the bottom of the stairs. There's the Davo. I think it's okay. So I walked into the room. And all I could hear is, he looks very pale. Looks very white. And everyone's saying, you know, Stephen, you know, Whatever happened on this tour, 
your ride today was amazing. You know, pity tomorrow's got another big mountain stage, you know, but to, to Morzine, but whatever happens, your day today was, was, was epic. Well done, well done, you know. So I'm saying, yeah, you wait and see. Because my plan was that um, show them I'm okay. And my plan was then the following day into Morzine, even to put one second into Delgado. Because in my mind, I was kind of working, okay, well, he sees me getting taken away in an ambulance. Next day, I'm putting one second into him. Following day with a time trial, I'm saying he won't sleep at night thinking this guy is going to beat me because he's, I've tried everything I can. He's been a white male on La Plagne and he came back. Next day, into Morzine, he takes one second out of me. So, you know, I was working on his, on his mind. So, in fact, I did everything I could to get rid of him going up the, the, up to um, the Juplan. Couldn't do it. So, going over the top, I just went on the descent. And I put 18 seconds into him on the, on the descent to the finish. And for me, it wasn't about putting 18 seconds. It was about just showing him that, you know, there's still plenty left in the tank. And that to work on this mentally, you know. And um, that was it then. So the time trial then, of course, was uh, two days later. And um, I put uh, 61 seconds into the time trial. So my overall idea to kind of show how well we knew our rivals then. We knew what, it, what we could do. And I knew from the very start that I could give Delgado, I could be within one minute and still hope to win the tour. And in fact, I, was, I beat him by 61 seconds and won the tour overall by, I think it was 41 seconds, I think it was so. But, um, you know, incredible day. I, I'm like tingling. <laughs> I, I'm like tingling. Listen to this story. I mean, you're just uh, a stone cold killer. I mean, calculating like basically on a stretcher and then thinking about the mental game. Thank you so much for sharing that with me, with us. It was one of my, my strong points was like that, you know. We'll be back after this short break. Now back to our chat with Stephen. You mentioned uh, uh, a few times now that your strong point was reading the race, yes, but also your recovery. Nowadays, they say uh, Tadej Pogacar is famous for good recovery. Would you recognize yourself in him or is there any other rider in a modern circuit where you go, yeah, that looks like a younger version of myself earlier? No, Pogacar probably reminds me of myself on a, on a better-looking better version, I suppose. <laughs> the only version. But um, <laughs> he's a, yeah, and I think his, his attitude, I like his attitude, on and off the bike. Um, but I think we are, cycling is blessed at the moment to have so many young guys there, 21, 22, 23-year-olds, all coming up and, in one sense, riding a little bit like old school. You know, going out to try and win, rather than saying, well, I'm going to do my best. Like, what's the difference, you might say, between doing your best and going out to win? Like, if I tell you I'm going to do my best, well, if I'm lying second overall in the race, well, I've done my best. If I've told you I want to go out and win, well, then if I'm lying second in the race, I'm going to try and find a way to win, because I've told all my mates I'm going to win. And this, I think, today in today's cycling is, um, has changed a little bit, that the riders are riding to win and they're prepared to to go from far out not just wait for the final kilometer or the final hill 
they're they're prepared to just go for it and see what happens. And I think that we are, I think we're going to live. We've already lived three or four years now with these guys, but I think the next kind of ten years there are going to be brilliant uh, battles between all these guys because they're all maturing at the same time. They're very very well balanced and time trialing mountains um, recovery team wise, and um, I'm really looking forward to the you know this generation kind of we really kind of you know drawing in the kids back into this, into our sport because of it being um, not just kind of go out there and ride. It's also tactics involved. There's the there's the mentality involved. There's you know dreaming up tactics and spur of the moment doing it on the rather than waiting for the radio to come on and say go now, don't go now, wait, move, don't move. You know, it's um rather just kind of live the race for what it is, and then when they see the opportunity, they take it rather than waiting for a, a strategy to develop. You know, waiting for a strategy to develop. Um, going back to the the third stage of your your triple crown was the worlds in Austria. I don't think that was on worldwide of sports. Um, so I had to go back and and watch it on the, the, the internet a little bit, you know, the old, the older footage. And I was just blown away of how tactical that race was. I mean, there was a lot of guys in that race. I mean, groups of three or four going off the front and you were absolutely fully committed to working for, for Sean Kelly that day. Um, but with the TV coverage, you know, not, being not as great as it was uh, or as, as it is now, can you explain your winning move? I mean, we, we see, you know, I saw in Velo News and Winning Magazine, like you coming across the line with your hands in the air. But when I saw the way the race was developing with all the big hitters of that generation, how did you make that final winning move that, that guaranteed you the win? Um. Well, of course, I had um, an incredible day. Like physically, I was, you know, absolutely amazing. And um, the deal was that I, with Martin Early, uh, Paul Kimmage, um, Alan McCormick, they would try and keep everything together as much as they could for as long as they could. And at the end, myself and Sean would, you know, help each other. So um, about the second last lap of the breakaway had gone and myself and Sean had missed it. Well, Sean had missed it because I'd done my work. Where Sean should have been there. So, uh, but Sean, I missed it. So I went to the front and got Sean on my wheel and we powered across to the, the breakaway. Got into the breakaway on the final hill, the second last hill. And I went straight to the front and, and drove it up over, the, up over the hill. And for example, the, um, the, when we rode the hill, first of all, everybody was saying, oh, you know, there's a circuit, big ring, big ring, big ring, no problem, big ring, big ring. So when I rode it, I had a small ring and a big ring, of course. And I rode every, every lap, the small ring on these hills in preparation, but the last lap. And the last lap was the only lap I went over the full whole circuit in the big ring. But it was, you know, it was a, to show how I was um, capable of um, managing my, my gearing. Like it wasn't just, we had to be very careful of our gear ratio because we hadn't got the selection the guys have today we had like 12 gears or six sprockets in the back so you got to choose your good your proper six sprocket because it's a very undulating circuit so um it's very very complicated so we um we um we um when we uh when we finally got going then on the, the final the final time i powered around and then my deal was just trying to keep things moving so that try and come into a bunch sprint 
But uh, Quick Alone was going very, 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 very well as well. And, you know, a few other guys, but each time I kind of chased them down slowly. And in the end, then I come to the back for a minute just to get a bit of a breather, waiting to open up for Sean for the final two or three K when Ralph Sorensen went away. So when these guys went away, I had to do something. So I was kind of placed in the back of the group, so straight through onto the back of the break. And Sean then, of course, couldn't come because Argentina's watching him. So I'm in the break then. I'm saying, well, what's going to happen now? I've ridden all day for Sean. We've done all this work. And um, four guys in the break. And I'm the slowest kind of sprinter. So I did what I could to stall. Didn't work out. So, um, you know, the, the human brain just works at an, an incredible kind of speed when in situations like we can run the final corner to the left. And I'm kind of thinking, okay, Ralph Gold is there. Ralph Gold's. There's um, Ralph Sorensen, uh, there's uh, Tun van Vliet. He doesn't get on with um, Ralph Golds. Uh, Winterberger's on my wheel. So if I go off into the, in, into the wind, Winterberger's on my wheel. So he'll come off my wheel in the end. Um, so, you know, this is all happening like bum, bum, bum. So I thought, okay, well, how can I get around it? So they came around to the final left-hand corner. And I thought, okay, well, as they come in to the close the door, into the, into the, the barriers, I go through. And that way, Winterberger won't get through. Sorensen will watch uh, Ralph Golds and uh, da, da, da. I might get 10, 15 meters. And who knows? So, you know, we talk about kind of Google help, whatever. It was like, kind of, here I am now, what am I going to do? And all of a sudden, a solution unfolds. And um, I wasn't a sprinter. Like, I only won, like, maybe two races in sprints in my life, you know? Other was were time trials or stage races, but in sprinting, I wasn't a great sprinter, so it was really a kind of quite um, <laughs> an achievement for me. But um, I got the jump on them anyway. Winterberger got caught behind, and uh, he didn't want to follow me through. And um, and off I went and uh, and won the, the world. But in the final 200 meters, was kind of falls flat, and I'm kind of waiting for them to come around. You know, I'm looking where 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 where, where are they? You know. And um, then, of course, you know, I won and um, amazing, um, amazing, the amazing feeling. So when, when you say how your brain worked so quickly, was it just your brain in that situation? Or you think a normal human brain can work that quick? Or was that another of your strengths that you could calculate and uh, process a lot of information quickly inside of your head? Um, well, I was always a very good tactician, so um, I saw I saw the opportunity. But I, you know, it's amazing how fast the brain works in this situation, because everything just unfolded. And you know, it wasn't a scenario you could kind of write about. You're you're all the time like, imagine you've got thirty seconds to 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 come up with something, some plan. The wind coming from the right. He's on my wheel. He's done. Gone. Finished. So, you know, I was always very good at strategy, but um, and I had the legs as well. But um, like I say, we need, you know, besides having the legs and the and everything else, we need a bit of luck. And that day was very lucky as well. I, I, I'm still just totally blown away that you. I, I just realized that I wasn't a bike rider. I wasn't a bike racer. I didn't think <laughs> the way that you just described that if this happens that's going to happen and this is going to happen i mean 
My friend, you were in the state of flow and flow is that just, you know, everything you're almost omniscient and you not only think about it, but you just react in, in such a, in such a way that it's, it's the flow state, you know, and it just gets me so, so excited talking about that. But so you went on to win the Super Prestige Pernod International, which was uh, awarded to the best writer of the year. Um, I think that's lacking a little bit. Yeah. You know, we don't really have that sort of classification anymore. Sure, you got the guy that has the most UCI points and the most points here, here and there. But how prestigious was winning that event? And do you agree with me that we need to kind of bring back some more like season long classification to rank the riders and, and award somebody the overall win at the end of the year. Definitely. You know, that year, like, you know, if you go on the UCI points, Sean Kelly was number one, but I had an incredible year winning the tours and stages here and there and everything else. And yet I wasn't number one, but the prestige parent had a more kind of balanced um, system of, uh, of points. And I won the, the prestige perno. And I think that, yes, I think we, you know, in football, there are also different leagues, different champ championships which to, to highlight, you know, different people. And I definitely think, yes, in cycling, we need a, we need something like the prestige perno to, to go along with the UCI or, or world tour points that are, um, we can always debate whether it's good or bad or indifferent, but um, we need a, a, a point system that to, to regroup all the big events and, um, have a more kind of have a good sponsor behind it and and make a big make a big thing about it because it's not always like the the guy who wins the tour shouldn't be the 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 best rider of the year. Like Van der Poel, for example, is a an incredible guy. Or Van Aert, even they're incredible guys, and sometimes they aren't number one. So um, we have to kind of have a balanced a balanced um, championships, I think, and um, to highlight and and to give these guys a their their moment of glory. Uh, we had a little bit of computer problems here. The sound might be slightly different, but here is the question. Steven, you won the Tour de France. You got home. There was this overwhelming reception in your home city. They closed the entire city for you. How was that for you? What, were you surprised by it? Were you surprised by how many people actually showed up for you? Because, you know, back then you were a bike rider and not, you know, you two uh, Bono. That's quite true, you know. Um, when I finished on the Champs Elysees, first of all, the, the Irish Prime Minister was there. I knew his name, I knew who he was, but I'm saying, like, what's he doing here? You know. <laughs> so um, anyway, I'm, they're telling me there, and then I'm going home to Ireland uh, next day for um, a civic reception. The the government have closed down the road from the airport into Dublin, and I'm going to ride on an open top bus with my family. There will be one open top bus in the front with um, some um, TV journalists, middle myself, my family, and behind some print media, three buses. So I'm saying like, but you're, who's going to be there? All the fans are still in Paris. There's only one or two flights home. So how can they all get home? I'm going to look stupid there arriving in the airport for a, for a reception and then my family are all there, you know? So um, anyway, we... Um, We arrive in Dublin airport and uh, we go to the, the, the um, VIP section of the airport and I'm, I'm looking up now at the buildings and there was massive banners, you know, welcome home, Stephen, welcome home, our hero. 
And I said, well, that's, that, that's nice, you know. So um, I got off the plane last. And um, as I got off the plane, the crowds jumped the barriers and run over onto the tarmac. So here I am, like, you know, this is nice. This is like the Beatles stuff, you know, or U2 stuff. It's like a, you know, it's absolutely amazing. The police had to have a hay of, like this. I walked under, the, under it and with my wife. And um, we're taking it to a private reception. And um, so I was saying, okay, well, okay. Everybody that's in Ireland about cycling has been there. So second part of the journey was going to be from the airport into Dublin city centre. So I'm saying it's going to be quite long and lonely because, you know, who's going to be there? In fact, we left the, uh, the airport and there was a policeman were walking with the bus to keep people back. There was people everywhere on the road. Like the, the, the 10K journey from the airport into Dublin was full of people. Then we arrived into Dublin and there was once again O'Connell Street with like, you know, thousands of people, um, kids with banners, you know, uh, the, sh the, the, the office blocks had all banners hanging from the windows, wrote for president, uh, you know, welcome home, our hero. Um, you know, it was absolutely, uh, absolutely amazing. And then um, I got home to my house then late at night, my parents' house. They brought me home with this, the bus. But I couldn't get to my home because the, the crowds were so dense outside my parents' home. So they brought me in a police car to the television studio. I had a television program lined up. And during the program, I had to say to people, sorry, guys, you know, those of you who are waiting at home for me, I'm not coming home tonight. I'm um, staying in the hotel because um, I couldn't get home. So I stayed in the hotel that night. And um, but, um, you know, the most unbelievable um, scenes from uh, from that day. And, um, you know, but one thing that really kind of made me proud also was that the national newspaper, the Irish Times, is only about politics and, you know, economy and uh, the ongoings of the, what's going on in the country. And normally at that time, there was a lot of trouble with Northern Ireland. So you'd have um, a bombing in Belfast, you'd have a shooting somewhere, you'd have a killing somewhere, you'd have you know, all this kind of bad news. And for this day, on the Monday, the 27th of July, 1987, you had to go seven pages back to find the first bit of bad news. Where you see kind of, for Ireland at the time, being a very kind of poor, backward country, um, to have this kind of um, impact was uh, absolutely amazing. And one of my proudest moments, I think one of my proudest achievements, was being somewhere responsible for the for this one day, the the Irish newspaper, um, covering seven pages of sport, not just cycling, but mainly sport, mainly Tour de France and, and cycling, but other sports as well. Before coming to the first bit of, of bad news, so um, like an amazing, totally unbelievable, um, amazing time, and I, I remember, I remember it for the the rest of my days. Even they said later on when, when President Kennedy went to Ireland or when Pope John Paul went to Ireland, he hadn't got the same crowds. But I'm not a pope, not a president either, you know. <laughs> the, the power of like sport. Like you a legend. The power of sport. But so I, I'm trying to do this calculation off the top of my head. Um, Nico's 39, your son. So he was he there with you during that that parade, or because he, he, what he'd be like one and a half, two years old. No, he didn't. Um, didn't come on the parade. But one very funny incident happened with uh, with Nico. We were on the um, 
my wife brought him to Dijon to the the um to the time trial in Dijon. And um I'm on the I finish off finish off my time trial, I'm get my yellow jersey, I go to the TV, I'm on the TV set with Delgado and everything else. And I Nico on my knees, you know. So he's finger up his nose, he says, Papa pee pee. <laughs> Papa pee pee. <laughs> so he says, uh, what to go to the toilet? So he had to get down on his hands and knees and crawl out under the people to to get off the set to go and to go to the toilet. So, uh, but he was like two years of age then, two and a half. But that must have been pretty special, you know. I had I have two daughters; they weren't at all interested in cycling. But not only did your son kind of follow in your footsteps, your nephew Dan Martin, who both of them were on our podcast before, um, went on to an amazing career. Um, you know, was that you that started that, or did you did did your your father, your grandfather involved in cycling? You know, you had to have been a proud not only father but but uncle seeing seeing those two young whippersnappers kind of following your footsteps a little bit. Yeah, it's in the, the genes, I think, somewhere, you know. But um, you know, I don't know whether you know this, but um like Dan, uh like um Dan's Dan's father, Neil Martin, he was a little bit I won't say responsible, but had a bit of an impact in my early career because myself and Neil were were pen friends. We competed first of all in the school by championships in Butlands in the UK in seventy five, seventy six or thereabouts. And he beat me and we became pen friends. And I used to go to his place for a week or two in the summer and, and compete. And he'd come home to my place and uh and race with me in Dublin for a few time, few few times during the summer as well. And then he went to the ACBB in nineteen seventy nine and of course he I think put a word in for me as well, you know. But unfortunately, the ACVB only had one room left for 1980. It took me and didn't take him. So, of course, feels a bit bad, you know, a little bit, you know, a little bit uncomfortable by times because, you know, sometimes I think Neil might feel that they chose me over him. Whereas if I hadn't been around, I hadn't been, they'd been presented to them, well, then they might have chosen Neil. But nevertheless, Neil was coming home to my house, met my sister, got married, and had you know two beautiful kids. And um, uh, Dan, of course, is a uh, is um, you know became on riding very well in the UK and rode in Ireland and became a professional. So unfortunately, I didn't have a lot to do. Not unfortunately, I didn't have a lot to do with Dan's career other than maybe you know trying to get him into it, Marseille when he was a, a up and coming um, amateur. But um, other than that, I had no real input. He everything he did everything himself. But um, like his dad, Neil was very, very, he was a pro and very, um, very cute, very clever guy as well. Um, a lot of class, but didn't make it, of course. He was a pro in the UK, but didn't make it big time. But nevertheless, very good and good, respectful pro. And of course, Dan um, pulled out all the stops and had a fabulous career, like winning, you know, classics and small stage races and, you know, having a brilliant career. Of course, Nico, Nico, of course, uh, you know, I didn't, I did help where I could with him coming through the amateur days and then into the pro season, trying to get him his first contract with, uh, with Kofi Disson. But I always felt like, you know, don't wait for me to help you. If you need me, I'm here. Because um, I know it's going to be difficult for him being the son of, uh, you know, or he's there because of his dad or whatever. So I wanted to him to do his own grafting. So I have no real kind of 
claim on any of his uh, his performances, um, other than you know he's my son, and I'm very proud of him. But um, he's really kind of uh, done a lot himself, and knowing of course you know I helped him out whenever I could, but um, especially in the beginning. But um, he has himself had a, an incredible career. So um, is there like a, sometimes I imagine in a romantic way, like a family reunion, Dan is coming for whatever Thanksgiving. No, that's an American thing. Let's say <laughs> Christmas. Um, you know, Christmas, your son is there. Is that happening? John Kelly pops in and goes, hey, let's have a pint of, uh, you know, a Guinness together. Is it like that? Or is you, you folks living apart and it's hard to actually meet in person? It's, it's unfortunate. It's like a love, love affair as well, you know, but at the same time, there's ups and downs. And, um, you know, unfortunately, the last few years, everybody is on their own different agenda. And it's um, difficult to um, put everybody together a different, other than, you know, being, being forced at funerals, you know, or um, whatever. But, um, you know, or weddings, you know. But um, it is something I would hope for in the not too distant future. There will be, you know, more family reunions. And now that Nick was retired, Dan is retired, and they're they're finding their feet. But nevertheless, they will find time to um to be able to have uh, some family reunions or ride a bike together or whatever, which I do now and again with Nico. But um, yeah, I I I do sometimes kind of wish there was a little more kind of a we have a little bit more time for each other, where we can just meet up and ride and not talk about our careers, but just ride a bike and share the passion. Well, Stephen, you have shown and shared so much passion with us today. Um, this is definitely one of our longer episodes, but there was no way uh, we could make it any shorter. This was this was absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for your time. We apologize to your wife and to your dog, who's obviously wants to be let out uh, multiple times throughout this recording. But thank you so much for sharing those memories with us today on Bobby and Jens. Appreciate you guys taking the taking the time and picking the phone up and Bobby uh, give me a call, you know, because um, you know we um, time goes on and the the um, we talk a lot about the new generation and what they do and their their exploits and everything else, you know, and we talk a bit now and again about Jens voice and Bobby Judix and everything else, and then the further generations, you know, they sometimes we um, a bit. Because we had black and white television at the time, we hadn't got internet or we hadn't got the Facebook or whatever. We um, sometimes you get a bit lost in the, you know, lost in the, in um, in the background, you know. So I really appreciate you, um, you know, pulling me out of the pile and uh, and having a chat. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Huge thanks to Stephen for being our guest. Thanks for listening and please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. The show was a Velo production in association with Shock Giraffe. This episode was produced and edited by Mark Payne. Please remember to check out the video version of this podcast by heading to the Outside Watch YouTube channel. Get in touch with us on Twitter, Instagram, Threads, and Facebook. Just head to at Bobby and Jens and give us a follow. The show was a value production in association with Shock Giraffe. This episode was produced and edited by Mark Payne. This week, we want to know, who do you think will win the Triple Crown in the future? 
if anyone. 